Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. All right, before we get started tonight, since we've had a little fun with the test and everything, let's, uh, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments to give you an opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to focus, and then I'll start. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we've got this opportunity to come together to fellowship around the teaching of your word and to recognize how important it is that the revelation you've given us in your word are the building blocks that you've uh, provided that are the basis for instructing us on how to uh, understand the world around us from your perspective, that we might understand reality as you have made it and not as, not as man constructs it. Father, we pray that as we continue our study in Hebrews and in the Old Testament under looking at the tabernacle, that we might gain a greater appreciation for the magnificent complexity of your plan of salvation along with its simplicity that even a, a child, a young child, can understand the gospel. But the more we study, the more we probe, the more we discover is there. Father, we pray that we might be able to focus and keep our concentration throughout this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Yeah, one of the purposes of that little exercise we just did is to help us understand that when you take children and you put them in school and they're exposed to a secular, uh, Marxist, uh, Darwinian education that sets their mind to look at reality a certain way, then it becomes very difficult later in life to knock that perspective out of their thinking because it gets set. And, and, of course, that's not impossible with God or the Holy Spirit or the Word of God, but that's the only thing that often can can do that. Okay, we're continuing our study in Hebrews 9. We're actually taking a side trip through Leviticus tonight because we're studying the backdrop, the background to Leviticus, I mean to Hebrews 9, which is the tabernacle and the various features of the tabernacle and the... Um, the furniture in the tabernacle and what went on in the tabernacle in terms of day-to-day rituals, monthly rituals, various things that are described in the book of Leviticus. And one of the things that I have uh, wanted to do for many, many years and have never had the opportunity is to teach the book of Hebrews in conjunction with Leviticus. Because if if you don't really understand about half of Exodus and most of Leviticus, then you just get lost in Hebrews, and you don't understand what the writer of Hebrews is is talking about. And there's just some tremendous and very interesting things going on. So we'll be going back and forth between Hebrews and Leviticus. Now, last time we started off with the tabernacle, and we explained that uh, how it was laid out, that you have an outer court that is surrounded by these outer hangings. The dimension of the outer walls was 100 cubits by... uh, was a hundred uh, excuse me a hundred cubits by uh, fifty cubits, and it is approximately one hundred fifty feet by seventy five feet. This is laid out, and there's only one entryway, only one way to God. 
Inside the outer courtyard, there were two pieces of furniture that we looked at the last time. We looked at the uh, brazen altar, and we had, and that's it. We're stopped there. We talked about the color that we find in all of the fabrics and the clothing of the priest. The colors are very important because they were designed to direct the attention of the worshiper to heaven. So the, the dominant colors that we find are blue, a bluish purple which speaks of heaven, a reddish purple that spoke of royalty, a two different colors of red, one that was uh, more of a, uh, usually translated uh, scarlet, and is a, a red with a hint of orange, and then you had another that is tra- another word that's usually translated crimson. Both of these pictures, the red is to picture the stain of sin. Red, very difficult color to deal with. It's uh, the dye was almost impossible to get out of uh, any fabric, any wool that it was uh, that it uh, was absorbed in, and so it pic- is a great picture of the stain of sin. And both of these words, as I pointed out are found in Isaiah 1:18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Only the grace of God can deliver us from the stain of sin. Sin has permeated everything in creation, and it is a constitutional defect that everybody has. And it's amazing that we, I think, I just get shocked every time I talk about or hear about somebody who doesn't believe that people are basically bad. I mean, I know that academically that there are people out there who don't think people sin or people aren't basically bad or evil. And it truly does permeate our society. And that is one of the differences between conservatives and liberals. And that was pointed out in a book called Conflict of Vision, um, by Thomas Sowell, and he said that's the foundational view is how people just view reality. Going back to that little exercise we did, some people just just can't get it in their head that men are basically evil. Their inclination is always to do evil. The Bible says the heart is deceptive and wicked above all things. Who can know? And I was talking to uh, my good friend Tommy Ice last week, and he said, you know, I have a student this year that came out of the ghetto, and he does not believe people are basically sinful and evil. And he said, I've had him a whole semester, and he still isn't convinced. Unfortunately, he has a friend that's in the class who's making some headway, and I thought, man, that's just amazing. Here's somebody coming out of that kind of a background that doesn't understand basic evil. And if you don't understand that man is basically sinful and evil, it's going to it's going to really distort your understanding if you're consistent, your understanding of the gospel, your understanding of grace, your understanding of everything in the Bible, because you, you, you're going to start off without a dead, evil, fallen, corrupt sinner. You're going to start off with somebody who at worst has probably just got the sniffles spiritually, and, and otherwise they're in perfectly good health, and we'll run into some examples of that. So we get into our study of the outer courtyard. We looked at the brazen altar the last time, and I put the model up here on the pulpit so people can see that a little easier. And the, the brazen altar had, a, had dimensions of about 
Five cubits by five cubits, which is roughly seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet, might have been a little bit larger, about four and a half feet high. Solomon's uh, altar, of course, was much, much larger. It was a hollow box. It was a box made out of, first of all, by acacia wood, which is a wood that's hard, incorruptible, indestructible, most enduring, least vulnerable to rotting. Which, and it was the acacia wood is a picture of the incorruptible uh, perfection of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it was covered in uh, bronze. And the reason it's covered in bronze is because bronze resists the heat. It's able to withstand the heat of judgment. So that the, bronze, the, the uh, altar here pictures the pouring out of judgment upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at the various uh, instruments that were associated with this for moving the, uh, moving the coals, for uh, handling the blood, for handling the, uh, the fire, and that these were also made of bronze because they handled the heat, uh, figuratively speaking, the heat from divine judgment. We looked at the fact that the, the, the horns on the altar speak of power, and when there was a sacrifice, the blood would be splattered against the uh, four horns of the altar and against the sides of the altar. We looked at the words for uh, altar, mizbeach, which is used over 400 times in the Old Testament, and it's based on, it's a, a noun formed on the verb zavah, to slaughter or to sacrifice. And this is just a generic word meaning to offer or to kill an animal as an offering to a deity. And this is the function of the uh, brazen altar. And then we looked at sacrifices briefly and traced the fact that sacrifices were part of worship ever since Adam fell. And I pointed out, we went back to look at Genesis 3, that after the fall, God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins. And that's just a very quick, just a very simple statement. But if you stop and think about everything that's involved in clothing someone with animal skins, the selection of the animal, the killing of the animal, the skinning of the animal, the treating of the hide, all of that, there's more going on there than uh, uh, than is indicated in that verse. It's just an abbreviated statement. But if you think about it, you might real, we realize that it's occasioned by sin, and so God would have used that opportunity to teach them about the necessity of a blood sacrifice as a picture of uh, expiation and the satisfaction, uh, the substitutionary aspect and pay, payment of a price of death for sin. We traced it through Cain and Abel, Cain's refusal to come to God on the basis of what God had provided already. I pointed out that there are many people who, uh, many theologians who argue that the difference between Cain's sacrifice and Abel's sacrifice was simply their intention, not what they offered. And uh, I countered that by saying that it's not, because I'll point out that it's called a mincha offering, and you don't get that have that word used anywhere else in Genesis. It's not used again until you get into the, uh, the offerings later on related to the Mosaic law. And it's often used in relationship to the grain offerings. That's the second offering in Leviticus. But the point is there's no other offering, there's no other sacrifice other than an animal sacrifice until you get 
to the Mosaic law. So there's no basis for anything other than a uh, blood offering, a blood sacrifice prior to the Mosaic law. And furthermore, there are many scholars who believe that uh, mincha was, was associated, was a word that was associated even with the burnt offering, uh, but it was a word that was dropped out. So that's not a determinative argument at all. And <clears throat> so we, we see a failure there. Now, three points I summarized, I uh, presented as a summary last time. First of all, that the location of the brazen altar speaks of the need for a sacrificial atonement, a substitutionary atonement. I can't quite drive that word home enough in understanding the nature of atonement. Uh, the speaks of the need of a sacrificial substitutionary atonement, a penal substitute. It's a certain kind of death. It's a violent death that is needed before the worshiper can enter into God's presence. So prior to worshiping God, prior to serving God, there has to the basis, the foundation has to be uh, this animal sacrifice. Second thing I pointed out last time was that the basic offering, the foundational offering for all of the sacrifices is the one called a burnt offering. That will be the first one we talk about when we get into Leviticus. The basis of this and the description of how it's supposed to be done is given in Leviticus chapter 1. So the basic offering is the burnt offering, an ola, which has the idea of something ascending or something going up. It's built off of the verb for going up or ascending, and it speaks of as the as the sacrifice is immolated on the altar, the smoke ascends uh, to God, and everything is consumed in the fire. And it pictures the full, uh, full-orbed uh, impact of the work of Christ on the cross, both in terms of its positional uh, sanctifi- sanctification and experiential sanctification. So it's not really right. You want to think about it. And we want to try to classify these as, well, this, this offering speaks of salvation. It does, but it speaks of more than salvation because the Jew would have been considered to have already been saved when he comes to bring a, bring a burnt offering. So it also pictures the basis for ongoing fellowship. So it's positional sanctification as well as experiential sanctification. We'll get into that uh, a little more. So to understand these things, we're going to get into Leviticus. And Leviticus, with a little cartoon up here, is a book about priests, and it's about feasts and offerings. And that pretty much describes Leviticus. So if you just get a handle on Leviticus, that's what it's all about. People can get uh, caught up in all the details of all the different laws and all the different things that can make you clean or unclean, all the different sacrifices. Just, just remember this, that Leviticus is about feasts and offerings, and the focal point is on the service of the Levitical priesthood. So what I want to do tonight is go through a bit of an overview and introduction to Leviticus and why Leviticus is, uh, is important. It is a book that I doubt that any of us, I don't recall any preacher, any pastor, any teacher ever going through a verse-by-verse study of Leviticus, and I'm not going to begin that tonight. But we need to survey it, summarize it, understand it, because it is the framework for understanding what uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying to these former Levitical priests, and he's going to be basing his challenges, his exhortations, his application 
on an understanding of what is pictured, what is conveyed in the offerings and sacrifices in Leviticus. So, we're going to start off with just some basic points on an introduction to Leviticus. Uh, introduction to Leviticus, and I have about six main points here, some of them with subpoints. Okay, first major point. Leviticus establishes the theological foundation for the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. That's what's depicted throughout this book. Is The focal point is that the sacrifices are a substitution. Those of you who've been in the history of doctrine class know that as in the history of Christianity, there was a, a, a long time, almost a thousand years before there's a clear articulation of the nature of the atonement. And in that in the history of Christianity, there are three different views, basic views that have uh, surfaced on understanding the Trinity, to, I mean, understanding uh, the atonement, and two of them are clearly wrong. And it's amazing because if you go back to the Old Testament, it's very clear in looking at the uh, sacrifices that the the function is substitution. So Leviticus establishes the theological foundation for the substitutionary work of Christ in the, in the New Testament. If you think about it, all the sacrifices and offerings, everything in the t- tabernacle says something about either the person or the work of Jesus Christ. It is Christ-centered. Second point about Leviticus is it describes the entire operation of the Jewish system of sacrifices and ritual. And the ritual is designed to be a picture, a shadow image, or a training aid for understanding certain doctrines that will be taught, made clear over the progress of time and progress of revelation. So God doesn't just dump everything like with a 25-volume systematic theology on Adam, but there is a progress to Revelation. He adds a little here. He starts off and says, okay, this is how you slaughter a, a, a lamb or a sheep, and this is the kind of lamb. This is how you sacrifice it. And then time goes by, and other things are added to it. You get to the Mosaic Law. You have a much more developed, sophisticated, complex system of sacrifices and offerings all designed to teach now other facets that relate to both uh, salvation and the spiritual life. And then when Jesus comes along, well, now you have a framework for understanding what's going on. So third point, Leviticus is written by Moses, and it has more verses presented as direct revelation than any other book of the Old Testament. Moses says, Thus saith the Lord, more in this book than any other book in the Old Testament. It, so it is. it purports to be a book giving direct quotes from God, direct instructions from God over and over again. And so this isn't uh, something that is inconsistent then with the righteousness and the holiness of God. I have had people say, well, you know, the Mosaic Law was really a system of tyranny. Now, Pharisaism in the New Testament has, had become a system of tyranny because of how they distorted the Mosaic Law. But the Mosaic Law can't be a system of tyranny because, number one, it comes from God. He's the one who originated it. He's not putting man under, under a tyrant and uh, under bondage. And number two, 
because Paul says in Romans chapter 7 that the law was holy and righteous and good. It is inherently virtuous because it comes from God. So it's direct revelation from God. A key idea throughout Leviticus is the idea of holiness. And holiness means to be set apart to the service of God. So the idea in the book is that you have to be clean, uh, ritually cleansed from sin in order to be able to serve God. And so that relates to both our positional sanctification, which is what happens the instant you're saved, you're set apart positionally in Christ, and it relates to ongoing service that that in order to serve God, we have to be have the, the ongoing sin in our life dealt with and continuous, be continuously uh, cleansed. A um, crucial issue, I think I've got a point or two I left out here. Let me see, yeah. Um, third point was it's written by Moses, has more verses as direct revelation. The fourth point is the key word is holiness. And the fifth point is a crucial issue uh, for the church age is to determine the purpose of the law. This is something that has been a problem with Christians ever since the early church. In the early church, there was tremendous discussion among the apostles initially as to, okay, once these Gentiles get saved, what do they have to do in relation to the law? Do they need to get circumcised? Do they need to uh, be involved in all of the ritual? Just how does it, how, how do these new um, followers of Jesus relate to the law. What do we what do we do? And that's they held the Jerusalem Council, which is described in Jerusalem I mean in uh, held in Jerusalem in Acts fifteen, where they worked this out and said at the at the end their conclusion was that it seemed right to them that the Gentiles were to abstain from idolatry, abstain from eating meat offered to idols, abstain from uh, fornication and live their lives uh, before God in righteousness, and they weren't going to require them to come in under the law. They were beginning to grapple with the issue of grace versus law. Then we come to the uh, verse in Galatians 3.24, which is uh, central to understand this. Paul said, therefore, the law has become our tutor. And he's, he's thinking in terms of a very broad picture, like a young child, making early the early history of mankind analogous to that of a young child. Once Christ comes, he's more mature because there's more knowledge. You have the Holy Spirit, things like that. So in, in mankind's infancy, the law was a tutor. It was, design, it was a pedagogue is a Greek word. And the pedagogue was a slave who was put over, given authority over the training of a child in the household. And this child virtually becomes a slave to the law. And the law is the boss. But the law is designed to teach things to prepare the child for maturity. So the law then points to Jesus Christ. And within the law, there are numerous things numerous symbols, various uh, principles taught through sacrifices and offerings that are there so that by the time Jesus came, they would understand these concepts of atonement and justification and purification, consecration, uh, reconciliation. All of these concepts would be understandable to them 
when Jesus came. So that brings us to a sixth point, which is an introduction to the law of Moses. And under the, this introduction, we will have uh, numerous subpoints, four basic subpoints, several of which have sub subpoints. Okay? So pay attention, don't fall asleep. Introduction to the Law of Moses. First point, the recipients of the law were Jews only. Now, I had a question this week that relates to this. It was a very good question related to the sacrifices on the brazen altar. What Were Gentiles allowed in the court? And they were. And if they weren't allowed to go any further, how did the Gentiles get cleansed from sin? Well, Gentiles weren't under the Mosaic Law, so Gentiles still got cleansed from sin the same way they did before the Mosaic Law and before Abraham, just through the general law of of, of offerings, of a, of a burnt offering, just like uh, they did before Abraham was called out and separated. But remember, the offerings, even though uh, a sacrifice like the guilt offering is trespass offerings, as those offerings picture something related to cleansing from sin, those offerings picture an already accomplished reality. It is not when they bring the sacrifice, the uh, sin offering or the uh, trespass offering, that they are forgiven. When they sin and they confess it, then they're forgiven, and then they go because they're forgiven and offer the guilt or the trespass as a sign as an outer sign of an inner reality. That's the same terminology we use to describe baptism. It's an external sign of an internal, already existing reality. And so they, they don't have, the Jews did not have to present a sacrifice at the tabernacle or temple to gain forgiveness. They gain forgiveness through confession of sin. The offering is simply the result of that. Okay? So uh, the law only applies to Jews. It doesn't apply to Gentiles. Gentiles were not part of it. The law was never given to the Gentile nations. It's given only to Israel, Deuteronomy 4.8, Romans 2.12-14. The Mosaic law is part of this contract with, between God and Israel. It doesn't apply to anybody else. And so there stands a unique relationship. Okay, the second thing under point six is that there were certain limitations to the Mosaic Law, certain limitations to the Mosaic Law, and I've got five limitations under point two. Five limitations. The first limitation is the law could never justify. You can't get justified by the law, by obeying the law. That wasn't its purpose. The law could never justify. Uh, Justification in the Old Testament, as in the New Testament, came by Faith in the promise of a Messiah. Abraham, this is Paul's whole argument in Romans 4. Abraham is justified by believing God's promise, and that's in Genesis 15, 6. And and that's referring back to something that had already happened. Well, Abraham gets justification by faith in approximately 2100 B.C., and the law doesn't come along until about 1400 B.C. So you've got... Uh, 700 years before the law, you have justification. So justification wasn't the purpose for the law. It pictured certain things related to it, but it doesn't justify. Second thing, the law could never give eternal life. 
The law could never give eternal life. Galatians 3.21, by, uh, the law was simply ritual. You had to believe in the promise of Messiah, and only on that basis did you have eternal life. So the law could never give eternal life. Third limitation of the law is the law could never provide the Holy Spirit. This is one reason, as we studied not too long ago in, in our study of Hebrews, that God promised a new covenant. Because in the new covenant, God would put a new heart and new spirit, his spirit, inside of of the Jews as part of the new covenant, which is enacted when Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. So the law could never provide the Holy Spirit. The law can't uh, justify. The law can't give eternal life. The law can't provide the Holy Spirit. And the law could never produce miracles, Galatians 3.5. The law could never produce uh, miracles. So there's limitation there. Fifth, uh, the law could not resolve the problem of the indwelling sin nature because there's it's not uh, defeated other than by the Holy Spirit. This is where Paul goes in Galatians chapter 5, that the Spirit wars against the, the flesh. So the law could never resolve the problem of the indwelling sin nature, Romans 8, 3 through 7, um, and compare that with Galatians 5, uh, 16, and 17. So those are the limitations of the law. What we have to remember here is that salvation in the Old Testament was based on faith alone and Christ alone. But it's based in the promise of a Messiah not in the fulfillment, the already accomplished fulfillment of a Messiah. It's anticipating, not looking back. So the Old Testament, they believed in a future provision of a Messiah who would provide salvation in the church age. And provide salvation in the church age, we look back to its having been completed, that Jesus Christ was our spiritual substitute who paid the penalty for our sins. Now, Going on to the next point, this is the third point under point six, the introduction to the law of Moses. The third point under point six is that it deals with the church's relationship to the law. The church is not related to the law at all. The law, according to Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for believers. The, the law's purpose was to point to Christ. Once Christ came, he fulfilled the law, and it no longer provided uh, a, a, a purpose for the church age. It's null and void. Second point related to the church and the law. The church is specifically not under the law. The law is not the Christian way of life. Does that mean that we have no law, no rules, no principles? No, we're not antinomian. See, that you'll get, if you're free grace, that's what you'll be called by the lordship crowd. And especially if you get over into the more Reformed camp, the theonomists, that means God's law, uh, the theonomic crowd that, want, that are basically want to establish a theocracy because they're post-millennial, got to bring in the kingdom, they will accuse us of being antinomian because we believe in grace. But grace doesn't wink at sin, which is what Paul argues in Romans 6, it just provides a solution for sin, and so we don't have to be under the law. So the second point is the church is specifically not under the law. Third point, believers in the church age are under a higher law, the law of Christ, which is the law of love, but it's not a subjective concept of law. It is a concept of law relate, a concept of love related to the integrity of God. This is found in Romans 8, 2 through 4, 1 Corinthians 13, 
uh, verses one through seven, uh, or six, one through six, and Galatians five eighteen, at twenty two, uh, and twenty three. Okay, so the church is not under the the, the church is the uh, Christ is the end of the law. The church is not under the law. Believers in the church age are under a higher law. And then fourth, the only one of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated in the New Testament is in relation to Sabbath observance. Now, that's really important because one of the things that distinguishes a dispensationalist from a covenant theologian is that in covenant theology, they think that unless Jesus specifically ended something, whatever was practiced in the Old Testament continues. So they would say, well, he ended sacrifice, but everything else continues. And dispensationalists will say, unless it is said to continue, it ended. Hear the difference? See, the covenant theology will say, unless Jesus stopped it, it continues. And dispensationalists would say, unless the New Testament says it continues, it stopped. And so that makes a huge difference in how they um, how, how they each look at various various aspects of the scriptures. So we would say that because that everything related to the Mosaic Law, it ex, I mean the Ten Commandments, except the Sabbath observance, is repeated somewhere in the New Testament. So you know, the, the Mosaic Law didn't establish that murder was wrong. It didn't establish that idolatry was wrong. It didn't establish that adultery was wrong or false witness was wrong or or dishonoring your parents was wrong. Those were wrong and sinful from the time of Adam's fall. They were always sin. Uh, but the, uh, and there's still sin in the New Testament. But the sign of the Mosaic Covenant was the Sabbath, so it does not continue. Okay, that brings us down to a fourth point. This is still a fourth point under six. Okay, subpoint. C under 6. 6 had to do with the introduction to the law of Moses. If we're going to get into the Leviticus, you have to understand basic framework on the law of Moses. And most Christians don't. We'll find out how well you did on your little quiz when we finish. The purposes for the Mosaic law. First of all, to provide a civil, criminal, and ceremonial law code for the nation of Israel, not for any other nation. It has civil law. It has ceremonial law, and it has criminal law, and what the punishment should be. And it's given in terms of case law so that by studying these cases, you can extrapolate the principles and apply them to other areas. See, that's the freedom that God gives man under the first divine institution of individual responsibility. We look at one case and we say, okay, well, if on the basis of that, we can think about several other similar situations, so... God gives us the pattern for one, now let's apply it in these other other circumstances. The second thing is that the Mosaic Law was to teach people how a redeemed nation would live that was set apart to the service of God. God said, you will serve me and all the nations will come to you. This is how you live and in a way that will attract their attention. So it's teaching the people how a redeemed people are to live set apart to the service of God. Third point on the purpose of the law is to demonstrate that no one could consistently keep the law, all 613 commandments. So nobody can do it. Therefore, if you can't keep 613 commandments, how in the world do you think you can measure up 
to God's absolute righteousness and save yourself. You can't. So the purpose of the law is to show that man can't do it on his own. He is impo- it is impossible for man to live in such a way that pleases God. And the fourth part of the purpose for the law, uh, fourth reason, is to communicate God's grace. Man can't do it on his own, but God provides a solution, and that's the purpose that we see in the sacrifices, is God is the one who provides a substitute that can bear the penalty provisionally and teach them about his grace until the perfect solution comes in Jesus Christ. Fifth purpose for the law is to provide a law code that would promote freedom and prosperity for the nation. They weren't enslaved to their leaders. They only became that way under the tyranny of taxation as the leaders violated the law. I'll avoid the temptation to make comment. Sixth point. The law is to serve as a tutor to lead us to Christ, to point to various aspects of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, and that's, uh, and then we come to our fifth point under C, fifth subpoint under C. The giving of the Mosaic Law introduced a new dispensation. God is now administering history differently than he did before the law was given. All part of the dispensation or the age of the Jews, which is divided into two parts, the introductory part, which is the dispensation of the patriarchs, and the Mosaic Law, the dispensation of law. And you know that the dispensation or the, the God's governing of man changes because he gives new information, new revelation, new covenant, which means that the terms uh, change, the expectations of God change. It begins at Sinai and extends to the cross. Okay? That should take us down through a good bit of our, of our introduction. So Leviticus is based on the divine purpose that God chose Israel to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. They were chosen to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And this is going to describe the code of conduct for people who are set apart to the service of God in that dispensation. So let's look at... uh, some other aspects, just some random principles related to Leviticus. First of all, we can't separate Leviticus from its historical setting and context in the Pentateuch. You can't go in and say, okay, I'm going to just have my morning devotions in Leviticus chapter 11 and see how that applies to my life today. There are principles there, but if you don't really understand how Leviticus 11 fits within the structure of Leviticus, and you don't see how Leviticus fits within the structure of these five books of the Pentateuch and how that, at the beginning of the Scripture, lays the foundation pointing to Christ, then you're probably going to get lost in the weeds, which is where a lot of Christians have ended up with the Mosaic Law. So we have to understand historical setting, the context, and where this fits in the flow of God's revelation. Second thing we have to recognize in Leviticus, it assumes the reality of the Exodus event. For those of you who recognize that a, uh, probably the, the third or fourth most attacked historical event in the Scripture is the Exodus event. 
creation's attacked, Noah's flood's attacked, the resurrection's attacked, and the exodus is attacked. That they that really didn't happen. The Jews were just a bunch of wandering tribes, and they made the whole story up to sort of bolster their self-image. And you have many Jewish scholars who who argue for that position, and that's because they deny revelation at the very outset. So it just a it reduces the Bible to just a bunch of legends and stories, and doesn't really uh, tell us anything. But if you treat the Bible as an integrated whole then everything fits together. Leviticus also presupposes the giving of the Mosaic law from God. Moses didn't sit down and write this. It didn't originate. What I mean is it doesn't originate from within Moses' soul. He doesn't go up and meditate, contemplate his navel for 40 days and nights up on Mount Sinai and then come up like with, with a law code all by himself. God is the one who dictates it to him. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. It said more than in Leviticus more than any other book. Leviticus is given to teach us about what it takes to have fellowship, an ongoing relationship with God, and so there's teaching about uncleanness. We have to distinguish between being ritually unclean and and sinning, because many of the things that made you ritually unclean, touching a dead body, a woman giving birth, many of these kinds of things weren't sinful but they were related to things that were part of the curse. And so God is using them as pictures of the fact that sin permeates everything. That's why there's this emphasis on leaven, because leaven as a picture for sin is used because it permeates everything. And so sin permeates everything, so uh, there has to be uh, something to deal with that and to provide cleansing. And often when the person is 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 uh, unclean. It's not that they sacrifice the animal, collect the blood, and splatter it on the person. Have you ever think about that? Who do they? Where do they splatter the blood? They splatter the blood on the altar and on the the furniture of the tabernacle because the holy God is living in the midst of corrupt, sinful people, and sin has an effect, and so the, the temple itself needs to constantly be cleansed from the corruption of mankind. And so the sin is put on on the things related to, the blood is put on things related to God because that's what needs to be also cleansed. We'll see uh, passages related to that. So, uh, again, emphasizing this facet of ritual cleanness is not the same as being in fellowship, but it's a picture of being in fellowship. It is, so if you're, if you sin, you're out of fellowship, you confess your sin, you're back in fellowship, and then you go and give the guilt offering, trespass offering as a sign of your humility before God and your gratefulness to God. So that brings us to the basic theme of, of Leviticus. Everything relates to this idea that to worship God, God demands worshipers be, be set apart to Him in order for them to serve Him. God demands that worshipers be set apart to him, be cleansed in order to uh, serve him. That is your main uh, main focus. Okay, we have about five minutes left to start getting into the first part of uh, Leviticus chapter 1. So open your Bibles with me to Leviticus chapter 1, and we will look at the first of the five main sacrifices that are described here. 
And I could probably spend the entire summer just going through these, and I'm not going to do that because I think for the most part we can understand them in a, in a little more of a, a, a survey fashion. Leviticus chapter 1, we read, Now the Lord called to Moses. We have gotten notice God is the one speaking. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock of the herd and of the flock. So in the first chapter, we will get instructions on the basic foundational offering, which is the uh, burnt offering. Now, the focus here is when anyone wants to come near, this is a word that speaks of fellowship. When you come near to God, when any of you wish to come near to me uh, and to bring an offering to the Lord, come near to me, then there has to be uh, an offering. Verse 3 says, if his offering is a burnt offering, a burnt sacrifice to the herd, and what we'll see here is that three different sacrifices that can be brought. The first is a male bull, male of the uh, 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 cattle. The second is going to be from the flock, also a male. And the third is a dove or a pigeon. Now, why the difference? Well, because the wealthy could afford to bring a bull. Those who were less wealthy but still fairly affluent could bring uh, a, a sheep or a lamb, a ram. And those who were uh, poor, who didn't have the resources, could bring a bird. So there's provision for everyone so that uh, economic circumstance didn't keep them from, benef- from being able to have a relationship with God. That even the poorest could bring a, a, a pigeon or a dove as a sacrifice. So if you read the chapter, what you see is a lot of repetition because it says almost the same thing about each one. And that's, um, and, and so, but they all picture the same basic thing related to the uh, burnt offering, the Olaf, which is uh, sometimes it's referred to as a, a holocaust offering because everything goes up, up to the Lord. Everything is consumed in the fire. This is, uh, while it's not always the first sacrifice given when people come, it is the foundational sacrifice. In Leviticus 1-4, we read that when someone brings the offering, the person bringing the offering comes into the door of the tabernacle of meeting as they enter in. There at the entryway, as they approach the uh, brazen altar, they will sacrifice the male from the herd, and it is to be a male that's without blemish. Verse 3, shall offer it of his own free will. It's a, volition, a volitional thing. And at the door of the tabernacle meeting before the Lord, then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement on his behalf. And this is a key word to understand. Holy atonement cleansing. These are major concepts that, that permeate the rest of the, um, the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. So it sets our, our understanding gets set here in these, uh, these sacrifices. The English word atonement 
The English word atonement means at one moment. It's a word that's coined in the early Middle Ages as a picture of reconciliation, that two people are brought together. Man is brought to God at one moment, and that's where that word comes from. It was used to translate this basic uh, word in, in, that we find in the Hebrew that's pronounced kafar or kapur, like yom kapur. That is, that's the, the root word. And for many, many years in study of Hebrew, it was thought that both of these words were identical. And what we actually have now is a recognition that these are homonyms. They're spelled the same, but there's two completely different words. One word, which is the first one I have listed there, means to cover. That's a word that's used of Noah covering the ark with pitch. And so what you probably heard and what I heard most of my life is that what atonement does, it provides a covering for sin. You know, a nice image there of the mercy seat and the blood being put there, and it covers sin. But that's not what the word means. The word means to expiate, to satisfy, propitiate. This is the concept of KPR. In many places, when the Jewish rabbis translated uh, kafar from the old, from the in Leviticus and in Exodus, and translated it into the Greek of the Septuagint, they used the, the, the Greek verb or the noun related to katharizo, which is the word for cleansing. Same word we have in 1 John 1, 9, that God cleanses us. And so cleansing and the either positional cleansing or ongoing cleansing is also a major idea in the word, uh, word kafar. So we understand atonement here as this idea of providing some sort of sacrifice. That's what's pictured here, a substitutionary sacrifice. Now, in the history of Christianity, we have, we've had some different views here. The first view that was clearly articulated was that of Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm lives about uh, in the 11th century, and he was the first to, to clearly articulate a substitutionary atonement. They believed that before, but it wasn't clearly articulated. And he emphasized that God's honor was violated. We would say God's righteousness was violated. And so there had to be a, a satisfactory sacrifice. And so Anselm is the first to understand Christ and clearly articulate, rather, that Christ died for us. But just about the same time that he's living, you had a guy named Abelard. And Abelard's the, the theological liberal. And Abelard didn't believe Christ died as a substitute. He's just a moral encouragement that you look at Jesus and you see God's love and you're just motivated to live for him. It's all about love. It's not about righteousness or holiness or the payment for sin. And so that's the Abelardian view. And that was viewed uh, uh, by the Roman Catholic Church as heresy. But it permeated people's thinking down through uh, the years in certain uh, heretical groups. After the Reformation, uh, you had a, uh, a brilliant uh, sea lawyer by the name of Hugo Grotius who came along and developed a slightly different view, and he said, what Jesus is doing on the cross is not paying the penalty for your sins. What Jesus is doing is showing that God really doesn't like sin, and he's going to punish it. And so he's, his, the purpose of, of the atonement is to motivate you to not sin because you're basically good. So it's motivational. And uh, he, he, um, here's a picture of Hugo Grotius. 
He believed he was a leading jurist and he was a member of the Arminian group at the and president of the Senate of Dort. And later, uh, he separated from them to some degree. Most uh, Arminians did not go along with him. In his view, the character of God is diminished, and it, the atonement is unnecessary, but it demonstrates that God doesn't like sin. And he's not, as Calvin Coolidge once said when he came home, you know, he's called Silent Cal. He'd gone to church, and somebody asked him when he came back, so what was the sermon about? He said, sin. What did they say about it? God doesn't like it. Well, that's kind of, Grotius has that view of the atonement that, that, uh, God is, it's simply to demonstrate God doesn't like sin. So, it demonstrates the righteousness of God's, of God's judgment. Now, this is really important to understand how this affects history because when you get into the early 19th century, there, there was a second great awakening in American history. And a lot of bad things came out of the Second Great Awakening. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Seventh-day Adventists, to name a few, transcendentalists, utopians, all kinds of other, other people. And there's a major shift in the way people thought about God and the Bible and man as a result of that. And one of the leading evangelists who's considered the father of revivalism was a man by the name of Charles Grandison Finney. Finney had the same view that Grotius did on the atonement. He didn't believe that man was born a sinner. Adam became a sinner, but every human being after him is totally, it's totally free of Adam's sin. You're born, every human being is born just like Adam was created, completely free of sin. That goes back to what is called Pelagianism, which was a heresy at the time of Augustine, that man is born free of sin and he's basically good. Well, if man is basically good, he just needs to be motivated. Sermons need to be motivational to encourage man to live to please God. You don't need to talk about God punishing sin. That's just a bad concept. You can see how this has impacted things uh, down through the ages. Well, if individual people are improvable and perfectible, then society is improvable and perfectible. So the purpose of the church is to improve and perfect society and bring in the kingdom. So there's post-millennialism there. But there's no true biblical understanding of sin, righteousness, justice, or substitutionary atonement. And so I have another, tonight's just a night for tests. We have another little, little, uh, test. This comes out of a, of a, uh, current a current publication. One other note is Finney is a founder of Oberlin Seminary, College and Seminary, Oberlin School of Music, which was Lewis Berry Chafer went. He wasn't influenced by, by, he hated Finneyism. Finney is the first to invent the walk the aisle uh, invitation thing. And uh, a lot of things came out of that period that manage is going to perfect society. So you have to clean up social ills. And that's the purpose for the church. You clean up socialists. See, this lead, will lead, this kind of mentality will lead to Marxist theology, liberation theology. It's going to produce the radical uh, suffrage movement. The now gang of the 19th century was just as bad as the uh, now gang of the uh, 20th century. But that we just want to focus on one final little test here of discernment related to atonement. You have um, Brian McLaren, who's a leader in the uh, emergent church movement. 
And he recently spoke to a group of people related to the church growth crowd up at Willow Creek Church. And in an article about that, I have a summary of McLaren's views. This is what influences the modern emergent church movement. McLaren, and I want you to tell me from this quote what his view of the atonement is. He wrote in his 2007 book, Everything Must Change. That's the name of his book. Doesn't that sound familiar? Hmm. wonder who he wants for president. Uh, everything was changed that the doctrine of hell needs radical rethinking. He argues that people who believe in hell may be inclined to dominate and take advantage of other people rather than to help them. The orthodox understanding that Jesus will return at a future date and forcefully conquer all his enemies also needs rethinking, according to McLaren. The book of Revelation does not actually teach that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, he wrote but that a new way of living is possible within this universe if humans will follow Jesus' example. Now, right there, you're thinking wrong. You just said, I know the answer to this. It's an Abelardian view. He believes in the example theory. Keep reading. By going to the cross, McLaren argued in his book, Jesus committed an act similar to the Chinese student at Tiananmen Square in the late 1980s. He placed himself in harm's way to demonstrate the injustice of a society that would harm a peaceful and godly man. Keywords in justice. Jesus is demonstrating God's justice on the cross. That's the Grodian view. So he's, a, he's, a, he's an out-and-out heretic. He's right in line with Finney and with Grotius, and, and, and there's no understanding of sin as sin with these people. This is just pure heresy. But people don't have any biblical or theological discernment, so they don't. This is why we have to understand concepts like these sacrifices and offerings, is to see that substitution is the key to having a relationship with God, and always has been. So it builds into some discernment. So that gives us a little introduction to burnt offering. We'll come back and talk about it more next time. Let's bow our heads in prayer. When I say amen, they'll cut off the live stream, and then I'll give you the quick answers to our earlier quiz. What a night of tests. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to study your word. Pray that you would encourage us with what we studied, saying that theology is vital to understanding reality, and we must understand it in light of your word. Uh, Encourage us to continue steadfast in our study of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.